Well, I hope you got enough of a break. You guys ready to jump in on some more cases? Um, I think, again, because of the, the really small nature of our group, if you all um, have other cases that one of these makes you think of or something else you want to discuss about one of your own patients, um, jump right in with that as well. So we're going to talk a little bit or do a few HIV hepatitis C co-infection cases. Um, so these are our objectives. And, you know, when we start talking about co-infection, I mentioned that, you know, the issue is drug interactions, although usually there's a workaround. But so one of the keys is to list the key antiretroviral classes, which are likely to have significant drug interactions. Key baseline screening labs necessary for HIV positive patients and recognize um, populations at risk for reinfection. So that's actually one of the things that comes up perhaps most now when you're talking about treating Co-infection, as well as uh, persons who inject drugs, is the risk of reinfection. And does that affect your calculus and how you decide who to treat? I don't know. That's, a, that's maybe more of a philosophical or ethical question than a, a medical one. So this first case, a 38-year-old transgender female. She was referred from a primary care physician for hepatitis C evaluation. These were the initial labs. So she was antibody positive, genotype 1A, low viral load there. You can see her liver function tests, mildly elevated ALT. She was screened for GC and chlamydia. She was on estradiol, 4 milligrams, and spironolactone. She has a history of injection drug use, but hadn't injected for four months. Um, she had initially identified as gay, had sex with both men and women. Um, she was not aware of any prior STIs and currently in a relationship with a woman. And her exam was unremarkable except for gynecomastia. So what additional screening tests are indicated? HIV test, hepatitis A IgM, hepatitis A total, hepatitis B serologies, or some combination of those. Go ahead and vote. We had to get their phones open back up and all right, should we call it? All right. So good. Um, you guys are picking up HIV, hepatitis A total, and hepatitis B. So um, I just want to highlight a couple of these points. Again, you guys are good and you picked up on these. But um, this was actually specifically, I looked for some studies specifically in kind of um, transgender populations and, and how often they were screened. So this was a study in New York City, actually, that looked at over 200 pa transgender patients who had had at least two visits um, and were on hormonal therapy. Um, and looked at the percentages that had gotten screened for these various different hepatitis A, B, or C, um, and then split up by female to male or male to female. And you can see um, overall screening rates were not superb. Um, they were somewhere in the range of 15 to 30%. Um, the prevalences that they actually found in this population are here, um, about 2% for both hepatitis C and HIV. And then Italy, another study similar size, um, that looked at screening and found a prevalence of hepatitis C of about 5%. Um, a lot of the studies, there's not a lot of data, but when, when it has been looked at, obviously, we, a lot, they find higher prevalence of both HIV and hepatitis C in transgender uh, patients. Um, the highest prevalence in the Italy study was over, uh, over just over 12% in male-to-female transgender patients, so a pretty high prevalence of HIV. <laughs> Um, and I want to make a plug for hepatitis A screening. We could say the same for hepatitis B. I know you, you all mentioned an outbreak of hepatitis B, um, doing a couple other programs around the country. They've had outbreaks of hepatitis B in West Virginia. We were there a while ago, not with an IIS program, but a different one. 
hepatitis B there. And up in Boston, even, you know, kind of in Lowell, um, Mass, up in the northern part of Massachusetts, they had a pretty big outbreak of HIV in, in a, a hepatitis C population where they recognized HIV as well. This is, there was a big outbreak in, the, in Europe of hepatitis A, um, over 4,000 suspected cases. This, uh, these are the breakdown of the, the documented cases where they had 14 that, 1,400 that were documented. You can see predominantly male. If they, if they stated they were predominantly, or at least half in this series were MSM, if, or no, sorry, 80% were MSM if they stated, and 40% had HIV infection as well. There was another big outbreak in Taiwan. Um, and then in New York City in 2017, they had um, just over 50 confirmed cases. They stated typically they had less than three per year in New York City and MSM. And then this was just the kind of histogram of the outbreak and where they were from. So most were from New York City, but there were some from Colorado, uh, one from Oregon, I think, in there somewhere. Um, so again, don't forget about hepatitis A and B as you're seeing patients, and HIV as you're seeing patients for their hep C. So this was a real case, and actually when she got referred to us, we did her HIV test, and she was positive. And so it was a new diagnosis of HIV for this patient. Um, you can see her viral load there. She was immune to hepatitis A and had not been exposed to hepatitis B. So how would you proceed now? So newly HIV positive as well as hepatitis C positive. Um, are you going to treat the HIV first and using a boosted integrase inhibitor, treat HIV first, boosted PI? Treat hep C first to avoid immune reconstitution flare of hepatitis C. Treat HCV first to decrease the risk of ART-induced hepatotoxicity. Use an unboosted integrase inhibitor regimen, or are you going to pick something else? Go ahead and make your choice. Let's see what we got. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I could sing, but it, I don't think that would help anything. All right. So um, the two options are split among two is treating first. Everybody's using an integrase inhibitor. Interesting. Uh, oh, now it's exactly 50-50 whether it's you're going to do boosted or unboosted integrase inhibitor. Oh, Christy, are you changing things now? You can't change your answer. Let's see what Is everybody changing now? All right, let's go on to it. So, you know, I, what's not controversial, you know, we, the pendulum has swung a couple times over the last couple decades since uh, the HIV epidemic, but I think it's very clear now you should treat HIV immediately as soon as it's diagnosed, really regardless of CD4 count, um, as long as uh, patients are ready to, to take therapy, and even sometimes if they're not, we try. Um, there's really almost no reason now, I would say, for... Um, treating hep C first. Um, I put some, a couple things up there. Could worry about antiretroviral, you know, um, hepatotoxicity. There was a little bit of data early in the HIV co-infection literature, but um, now with our modern antiretroviral therapies that are very well tolerated and generally pretty liver friendly, I think the concerns for that are really minimized. Um, so that's not, I don't think, a reason to treat hep C first. Um, uh, there are some thoughts as you're thinking about what the antiretroviral regimen will be in terms of drug interactions. And so, you know, um, things like efavirenz, which we don't use very often anymore, is not a first-line regimen, is one that was more problematic, so it's not something you'd want to reach for. I, again, I don't think it's not a DHHS-recommended first-line HIV regimen anymore. They're all integrase inhibitor-based. 
um, with boosted darunavir as a possibility and somebody you have some concerns about adherence for. Um, this is just a reminder that HIV adversely impacts the natural history of hep C. Um, it does accelerate liver fibrosis progression. This was a large study done in the VA um, virtual cohort. Um, and what the, these lines are, this is time to hepatic decompensation, the cumulative incidence. This bottom dotted line is an HCV mono-infected veteran population. So that's their rate of progression to hepatic decompensation. The top two lines are both HIV co-infected populations, so they have a faster progression. They reach decompensation faster. Um, and then this slide looks at HIV RNA suppression. This one looks at what their initial CD4 count was. And so you do slow things down a bit. This bottom of those top two lines is our patients that had HIV viral load suppressed for the entire time they were following them in this cohort, less than 1,000 anyway. And so you do see treating HIV slows that progression down a little bit, but you certainly don't bring them back to a population that looks like an HCV mono-infected population. And the same goes for their baseline CD4 count. If they have more advanced immunosuppression, they tend to progress a little faster um, in, despite being on therapy. So this is just a reminder that we need to take hepatitis C out of the equation for these HIV co-infected patients and, and, and do it sooner or, or do it as soon as we, it's, it's clinically feasible. Um, there was some additional data from this cohort. The longer they were on HIV antiretroviral therapy, they seemed to continue to accumulate some benefits. So they continued to have less of a risk of hepatic decompensation, a relative risk, the longer they had been on antiretroviral therapy. So these are just as a reminder, in the IAS USA guidelines that were published in JAMA this year, they really simplified things down. This is even even more restricted list than the DHHS recommended. Um, in that they, they also went away from boosted integrase inhibitor regimens. And part of this stems from the data with Bictegravir and Dolutegravir in an even as unboosted integrase inhibitors that they're very potent, seems to have high barriers to resistance. So even patients you might have a little concern about adherence with, um, where the old guidelines used to recommend boosted PI regimens if you were worried about their adherence to protect from HIV resistance to some extent. The data we have with dolutegravir, which is the best, really seems to suggest it acts pretty much like a boosted protease inhibitor in that respect. Patients failing are not going to have integrase inhibitor resistance in general. Um, they may get an M184V, but that's usually about it if they do. All right, so she was started on um, dolutegravir with tenofovir alafenamide plus FTC. And within one month, she remember she started pretty low, like, well, 300,000. She was already less than 30. Um, and had no side effects. So we calculated a Fib4, and that was 0.53, an enhanced fibrosis test. I probably had a trade name in there, and I got uh, changed, but this would be one of the proprietary blood tests, the enhanced fibrosis test. Um, and she's eager to start therapy. So what, based on that Fib4, anybody, does that sound concordant with what our other fibrosis test said uh, in a stage F1? Yeah, right, so 1.45, kind of below 1.45 is pretty high negative predictive value for cirrhosis um, and, or lack of cirrhosis. And so that's, you're in the early stage range, certainly. And Andrew's, uh, you know, schematic, she's certainly not somebody you'd be worried about advanced fibrosis anyway. None of these tests, right, can really tell you an F1 from an F2, from maybe even early F3s, even though your insurance asks them to do that. Um, and she's ready to start. So again, one, 1A. Treatment naive. Um, now she's got a viral load of 3.4 million. She's on the antiretrovirals right up top, but she's also on estradiol and spironolactone. So 
Your insurance company tells you you're going to use glucaphedrine pabrentosphere for eight weeks. Is this an appropriate treatment duration and regimen in this setting? So thinking about the drug she's on as well as what we're dealing with, which is a 1A treatment-naive non-serotic. No, it was not studied for eight weeks in co-infection, so you can't use it for eight weeks in co-infection. Um, no, it was studied in co-infection uh, at eight weeks, but SVR was inferior to 12 weeks. It was studied and SVR rates were high. Yes, it wasn't studied, but Andrew thinks it's okay, so that's what makes it okay to do. That might be the safe answer. Um, because of a drug interaction with her estradiol, you can't use it, or a drug interaction with her antiretrovirals. Okay, well, you got four. It's a lot of choices, a lot of stuff to digest there. Let's go ahead and see what those four people had to say. Oh, glitch. Okay. Well, that's, I think, more than four, right? Can you hear her? Oh, no, yeah, you can. Anyway. All right, so no, it was studied and was inferior, so we got yes, high SVR, 98% was the most popular answer and is the correct answer. So we'll talk about that a little bit. So here is the co-infection study, Expedition 2, with this regimen, and it did evaluate eight weeks. Um, so with some of the other regimens, like we talked, sofloidiposphere, there was really no eight-week data in co-infection and why that population was not recommended. But for here, we have a dedicated study which showed excellent SVR rates, no different between eight or 12 weeks. Um, so the antiretrovirals that were allowed here... Um, Boosted regimens were allowed, but there were none in the actual study. And actually, if you look at the label, boosted protease inhibitors are not recommended with this regimen because there's no clinical data and there is a significant increase in um, glucaprevir exposure. Um, and it did have serotics that did very well as well, although they were not in the eight-week arm. That's all we need to say here. So in terms of drug interactions, one place you can go is what we've already mentioned, the hepatitis C guidelines. There's a nice table in there. There's also the University of Liverpool has a very nice site. I see some heads shaking that they've been there. Um, hep drug interactions, if you put hep drug interactions on the internet, you can go to that site. And it has a really nice interaction checker um, that you put in the hep C drugs. You can put in multiple hep C drugs and multiple of their medicines. You can put the whole list down and it'll give you the interactions for all of them on the side. And it's a pretty nice and comprehensive uh, website. Um, the, the main issues that we still deal deal with with certain regimens are the boosted regimens. Um, here I have integrase inhibitors plus the, the nukes, but the boosted um, L-vitegravir cobacistat, the boosted um, integrase, you're going to potentially have some issues with PI-based regimens, um, although for most of them the yellow would mean you could still use it, just kind of exercise some caution. The other thing we worried about with some of the soft and NS5A-based regimens with Tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate, so the older prodrug formulation, you had higher plasma tenofovir levels. And then the hep C drugs, along, especially if you're on a boosted HIV regimen as well, would increase that level further. And there was some at least theoretical concern about maybe causing kidney injury in particular would be the acute thing you'd be worried about. Although in trials, really, we didn't really see a clear signal of that. Um, but again, now that most of the time people are using TAF, the other prodrug, and you have much lower um, plasma tenofovir levels to start with, that interaction is really not a consideration anymore. 
So estrogens, this is the one that might have tripped you up a little bit. Um, so you have to be worried about um, estrogens with both the paratapavir-based regimen that we heard about earlier, and then even with glucapavir pibrentosphere. But it's specifically with ethyl estradiol, so used as contraceptive therapy. Um, standard estrogens, like our patient was on, estradiol, is a little different formulation, a little different pro, kind of pro-drug, if you will. And I had to ask our pharmacist this as well. But when we went down through it, it doesn't appear to be an issue if, if you had a transgender patient on estradiol. Um, it's, it's, again, it's with the hormonal contraceptives that have synthetic estrogens in them that you see the problem. And it's really not understood, I, I, I still don't think to this point. What was seen, though, is very quickly after co-administration in, in, in healthy volunteer studies is increases in LFTs and, and GI distress, nausea, vomiting um, with elevated LFTs. Um, so again, ethanol estradiol is the main one to think about. And again, if you have progestin-based um, contraceptive therapies, there's no issue with um, GP. Okay, so here is this thing. This is actually really from Jen Kaiser, um, uh, who I talked to on the phone across the town. But um, it's ethanol estradiol, again, that different formulation, you get much higher oral bioavailability and in increased hepatic concentrations. Um, but there were a few women just on estradiol, either postmenopausal, I suppose, or transgender, um, and they didn't see in, in these, you know, 18 women any increased LFTs with, with GP in phase two and three. Okay, one more case here, I think. Um, so this is case two. I titled, Doc, I don't want to change my HIV pills. Um, so 57-year-old Hispanic gentleman, genotype 3, compensated cirrhotic, also has diabetes, hypertension. Um, and he's hepatitis C treatment naive. You can see here he's a genotype 3A. I went ahead and gave you the NS5A, no NS5A, no Y93H. And there, there are his labs here. Um, you can see this, plate the count of 103, albumin 3.5, give you an INR, I guess. Let's say it's 1.1. Um, ultrasound nodular appearing liver, generous spleen and a bigger portal vein. Here's his medications. Amlodipine, atorvastatin, and metformin. Um, he's on boosted darunavir. Um, so darunavir 800, 100 plus TDF, FTC. He had been on efavirenz based regimen before, and he did have some resistance. So he had NNRTI resistance, and he had an M184V. And he says he doesn't want to switch his antiretroviral therapy. So let's see. I made it tough. I don't know how realistic, but what's the best treatment option if you keep him on his current antiretroviral therapy? GP for 12 or 16 weeks, soft vel for 12 weeks, soft vel box for 12 weeks. There's no good options. He needs to change his antiretroviral therapy first. How about his creatinine? Yeah. Let's say his creatinine's normal. <laughs> I don't remember. All right, so it's moving, moving. But most of you picked soft vel for 12. Um, a couple have the, the GP down and a triple, and there's no good options they should change first. All right, so let's talk. So drug interaction. So now um, we're talking about um, a patient who's on a boosted protease inhibitor, specifically boosted darunavir, um, and then is also on this formulation, uh, TDF of tenofovir. So first you can see 
on um, boosted darunavir, and especially in a cirrhotic patient, um, that really is going to knock out the GP regimen if they're on a boosted protease inhibitor. We already know in the setting of cirrhosis, levels of glucaprevir already go up um, about twofold. It depends on the level of cirrhosis you have, how decompensated in that child's pew um, kind of system that, that Andrew talked about. But they're already up, and then you're throwing on a protease inhibitor. In case of boosted darunavir, it's going to cause about another five-fold increase in glucaprevir exposure. And so again, according to the label, it's not recommended. And even in the studies that would have allowed it, it wouldn't have been allowed in a cirrhotic patient because you're already dealing with higher levels. So it's kind of a multifactorial thing. So really, you're kind of knocking those out already. And then I think Christy was kind of alluding to what your consideration would be here with soft valpatosphere. You're OK with the boosted protease inhibitor. Um, the reason it's even yellow is because, of, in theory, on a boosted protease inhibitor, you're possibly um, altering levels slightly, but you're also probably also already starting with higher tenofovir levels. And then if you have somebody on TDF, that would be the concern. So I think if you had somebody that had any renal dysfunction, you'd be nervous about it. Um, but I think that was the option that you had if you didn't want to absolutely switch his medications. What? Oh, because he's a cirrhotic genotype 3, uh, even though he was treatment naive. So in the guidelines, the suggestion would be to check that. And then if he had a Y93H, at least strongly consider adding ribavirin. Yeah. She was also on dialysis, and she <laughs> actually had a lot of HIV resistance and really needed the boosted GI, so. Yeah. Just pick your evil. <laughs> um, you know, before we had, like, GP and had options for non-genotype 1 patients on dialysis, we used cefosfavir-based regimens, yeah. like soft acladosphere. Yeah. Um, anecdotally, it was probably, like, three or four patients. We didn't run into problems with it, and there are... Um, most of it's been abstract. I don't even know if any of the data has been published. Yeah. Yeah. So the manufacturer, I mean, Gilead has been conducting studies. Very, it seems very slowly <laughs> yeah. with sofosbuvir. When they've been presented, there hasn't been any clear signal. There have also been real-world studies presented, quote-unquote real-world studies of use of sofosbuvir-based regimens in patients with renal dysfunction or even on dialysis. And again, I, I don't remember any of them showing any untoward effects that could be ascribed to um, higher soft exposure or the 007 metabolite. I almost think uh, how bad they are cirrhotic. Yeah, she's cirrhotic, but not not at all. Compensated. But you're gonna but on a boosted PI, Darunavir. So you're gonna have a 500% increase in. Ten, I would go with soft. I think. I think it's safer. What could happen? Right. Yeah. Monitoring just for just like bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just like, you don't know what to look well, for. Yeah. Well, right, but I mean, it's like, what are you, you know, yeah. targeting? All right, I'll take my conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, um, in terms of uh, with Softvox, well, that was an option on there. Um, the. The guidelines actually do list softvelvox as a potential for complicated genotype 3 patients, treatment experience patients. Um, I think it's the treatment experience cirrhotics. As one of their preferred options is 12 weeks of softvelvox. That is not in the label. Um, and, um, but that was because of favorable data with eight weeks um, and extrapolating, well, eight's good, 12's better. 
um, and it's an option, and, and the responses are suboptimal. But here's what happens. Um, Darunavir hasn't been studied specifically with this, um, but for um, Vox alone, you know, just like the other protease numbers, you do get a bump. It's not quite as much, um, but Z Vox concentrations do uh, more than double. Um, and then again, same thing. It's kind of a general rule of thumb with the protease inhibitors. Their exposure is going to go up in cirrhotics. It's for grisoprevir, for voxilaprevir, anglicaprevir, the exposure all goes up um, in cirrhotic patients. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind as well. And again, if they're decompensated, really should not be used. Um, so th this is the data with soft patosphere and co-infection. It was a 12-week single-arm study. Again, very good response rates. I think for co-infection studies, the most illustrative thing is just to pay attention on to what antiretrovirals were allowed in the studies. And the one unique thing about Astral 5 was it did allow boosted protease inhibitors in, and, and half the patients were on boosted protease inhibitors. Um, so 47% were on a boosted protease inhibitor. Looked very well. And then the renal outcomes, um, this is getting back to the point Christy was alluding to in the fact that when you're on tenofovir plus the boosted um, protease inhibitor, you're probably going to have more tenofovir exposure, but in this study anyway, there was no significant change in GFR over the study. These were the patients on TDF plus a boosted agent, and there maybe was a slight drop here over the first four weeks, but it came back up while they were still on therapy and, and stayed essentially the same the rest of the therapy. So gives us some comfort in, in using a boosted regimen in this population. Okay. So this patient was treated with 12 weeks of soft vel and was cured. He asks if he can be reinfected. He is an MSM with a history of GC, um, syphilis, and multiple partners. Which of these risk groups do data suggest is at highest risk for reinfection? Persons who inject drugs with ongoing injection drug use, HIV-positive MSM with multiple high-risk sexual behaviors, prisoners, heterosexual couples where one partner remains HCV RNA positive. Which do you think is the highest group, highest risk? One brave soul. Is it not, uh, probably not capturing it? Yeah. Oh, there's a couple. All right, we got some. Let's see what we got. Okay, person to inject drugs with ongoing injection drug use most popular answer, and 30% said HIV-positive MSM. So this was a kind of a meta-analysis looking at studies and risks of reinfection in published studies that was done, and they broke it down into low-risk categories, was essentially, uh, or were patients without a history of recognized injection drug use and were not HIV-positive or, or prisoners. The, this category, they combined persons with a history of injection drug use and prisoners, and they had an intermediate risk, five-year cumulative rate of reinfection at about 8%, but the highest risk group was HIV co-infected in terms of risk of reinfection. Now, there's problems with this study, um, for sure. The, most of the HIV co-infected studies they included were studies of acute infection. So it's not your HIV co-infected population you have in your clinic necessarily that maybe have been HIV infected for 20 or 30 years, maybe injected drugs in the past but are not actively injecting and haven't for decades, or even MSM who had maybe now are in a long-term relationship and are, are maybe not as high risk. So I, I do 
try to point that out every time. I think this skews things. And I was suspicious of this data when we first saw it. Um, but there have been multiple studies now that have pointed to kind of that same direction. This was within a, germ, a large German cohort, um, the Gecko cohort, where they looked at, again, risk of reinfection in their cohort. Um, these are the percentage of patients in their cohort that had reinfection. The, the biggest group was um, MSM. So 14% of those who got reinfected were MSM um, versus much lower percentages of overall um, who got infected. The numbers per rate of reinfection per person year, so about nine per 100 person years versus um, one in the IDU. Um, again, there's problems with this cohort as well. This was how they were, this was their hepatitis C risk, how their hepatitis C risk was ascribed. And so if they had a history of injection drug use, they were categorized in the IDU group. It doesn't mean they were actively injecting. It means that's how they were thought to have acquired hep C, and that could have been 20 years ago through injection drug use. So again, I think we have to take this with a grain of salt, but it's certainly suggesting there's a high rate of reinfection in HIV-positive men who have sex with men. Yeah. Yes.
Absolutely, yeah. Okay, these are the take-home points, but we won't belabor them. Or talk about them. <laughs>